Hello, and welcome to Manga Explaining Extra, the show where we don't recommend great manga to folks who haven't read manga before, but instead talk to people who work in the manga industry about making manga and everything that comes along with it. Hosted usually by Deb Oki, David Brothers, Christopher Woodrow Butcher, that's me, and Chip Zdarsky, it's just Deb and I here today. You can follow along with our show notes and reading list at mangasplaining.com. And this week, we have two very special guests on the podcast. Yes, it's one of our very rare, once or twice at most per season interview episodes. We're so delighted to have our our friends, Abby and Matt, here. Normally, I would... You know what? Actually, I will. I will. And and then, of course, Deb is here. Deb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's so nice to see you both here. I I heard... um, I'm so excited to talk to you about your books. I just got finished reading all of them. (laughs) (laughs) literally everything all at once that's great for those of you who don't know who abby and matt are abby denson is a writer creator traveler travelogger extraordinaire who's been artist teacher like you're doing all the things who's been working in the industry for a couple years and who i've known for a really long time and i followed their work since i was a teenager myself actually which is which is pretty cool we were like this must have been the same age, which is wild. And their newest books. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a second. And Matt Lux, I pronounced mispronounced his name the first time I met him, and it is Matt Lux and not Matt Lou, as I have a tendency to over Canadianly pronounce every word I come across that looks remotely foreign. Matt, I became aware of his work on side scrollers for Oni Press like a million years ago, and now he has just created an amazing kids book called Prunella. And and they're a couple. Oh my god, you guys are a couple. How do you feel about that? <laughs> How do you feel about being our first married podcast guests? Not counting Matt Alt and uh, Patrick Massius, who are kind of like spiritually married. <laughs> see actually you know what let's let's let's, oh that's the real first question it was but (laughs) here why don't you actually oh sorry that was part of the intro no no i gave a very personal who are you guys but i feel like you're pros why don't you give me like the the comic-con give us the comic-con spiel uh at the beginning of a of a panel discussion who are you and why are all these delightful people here assembled to see you today (laughs) <laughs> okay, I guess I'll go first. So I'm Abby Denson, and I've been making comics over 20 years, I think, but time, you know, shifts in interesting ways. I started out doing DIY, you know, self-published comics that were then uh, published in XY Magazine, which was a gay youth magazine wow. of the time. And then I also got into writing for licensed books such as Powerpuff Girls and Amazing Spider-Man Family and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, things like that for various publishers. But I also, you know, was really still wanting to do my own work. So I have some other books like Daltopia and more recently the Kitty Sweet Tooth book series, which was a collaboration with Japanese artist Udomaru. And I have three books I wrote and drew about Japan out from Tuttle. So there's Cool Japan Guide, Cool Tokyo Guide, and Uniquely Japan. Mm. All in a mouthful. Hopefully, that, <laughs> hopefully that'll give, give you an idea. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah, your work in XY Magazine is where I first encountered it. I want to talk a little bit about that. But let's first introduce Matthew. Matt, or sorry, Matt, Matthew, what are, you, what are, you, what are, what are we going to do this, this episode? Does I call you? Matt's fine. Oh, right. Matt's fine. <laughs> Usually, yeah, yeah. Like when I interact with humans, it's Matt. But like for my for my title on books is Matthew. 
but either one's fine, honestly. So yeah, my name is Matthew Lux. Uh, that's a very American way of pronouncing <laughs> that last name. I've been doing comics since about the mid-aughts. My first work was with Oni Press. I did a book with Anthony Johnston for my first book with them. And then I did my own stories. So like you said, Side Scrollers was the first one. Then I did a kid series with them. My first kid series was called Saltwater Taffy. And we did five books of that. That was a very fun kind of like a kind of an adventure, you know, a Hardy Boys-esque kids adventure on a vacation with like local sea monster folklore of new england which is where i grew up so kind of a little bit of a throwback to you know my brother and myself and then i started working with first second i do a series called the time museum i've done two volumes of that and i'm working on the third one right now that's kind of like a fun time travel kind of adventure and the book that I uh, most recently did is a fantasy story called Prunella and the Cursed Skull Ring. And that came out pretty recently, and also from First Second. That's uh, my first fully hand-painted book, like all, all done by hand. Like every, every, almost everything except for uh, some editing and the actual letters for the lettering. Uh, that's very cool, both of you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I want to go back. Abby, I want to start. Yeah, your your work comics were some of the first like queer comics that I even came across. Like as a young person who was reading XY magazine back in the day, I would flip it open. And I'm like, oh, there's comics in this because comics weren't anywhere. They were like, you know, the Transformers and GI Joe stuff and like X Men that I collected obsessively as a teen, looking for like any kind of queer representation. And then I moved to the big, or that I didn't even move to the big city. I snuck off to the big city on my lunch hours from like the suburbs with like behind my mom's car and be like oh i just it'd be easier if i drove today mom and it's like no i'm going downtown i'm like driving for an hour to get downtown and skipping one of my like the period after lunch just so i can go to tower records and buy xy magazine because it was too scary to go to the gay village but i could go to tower records and get like the cool magazines that were imported from the states and coming across your work there was so cool was so cool to me Thank you. Yeah, they had good distributions to Tower Records. I think that they were in Tower in New York and also I think in Tower Japan, which is how I did get some other, I have a a few Japanese pen pals from that. So it was a really cool, you know, distribution system. But, But yeah, so the story behind that is I was in college. I was, it was the first real comic I ever drew. I had started getting into manga, but I was already kind of, not so interested in the action and sci-fi manga that was available in the mid nineties. But I was like, I really loved my Zani Koku and Ron Maha. And, but I also, my favorite artist is Keith Haring. And I, and I feel like if you look at my art, you can see both of those influences, Rumiko Takahashi and Keith Haring. Mm -hmm. But that was kind of what my first comic looked like a little bit. And I had absolutely, even though I was studying illustration in college, I had no comic art training i just i just like to read comics and manga so i just basically but i was into punk i was in punk bands and i was into zines so i knew how to make a zine and i wanted it to make like a zine that was kind of a punk comic but i wanted it to be a gay teen romance and the reason for that is that you know i come from like i have like my dad's gay my uncle's gay my friends in school were gay i have gay family i have gay friends it was part of my life and I also was interested in the shonen eye manga, mm. like 
that was not translated, but I could start to see and was hearing about. And I was like, you know, oh my god, me too. I want to make something. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I want to make something like that, but it was very almost impossible to get. I could see what was in the Fred Schotz book, mm-hmm. Manga Manga, which is like a formative work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Since you could also see Rosa Versailles was in there. Mm-hmm. That was like I think the only place it was, you know, published in English for a very long time for parts of it. But it did have segments of, I believe it was, they had Song of Wind and Trees in it, mm. some Keiko Takamiya's work. And that was like really enticing to me. And I was like, I want to make something like this, but I also have my own real life experience of, you know, what <laughs> is going on with American gay people around me. And I wanted to try to make something that was a little bit like that. <laughs> it reflected, even though it was a total fantasy. I kind of love that. <laughs> in, in yeah, but you, you probably had more experience with real life gay people than anyone making Shonen Nai manga in Japan at the time. <laughs> like, not to be yeah. super rude about it, but like, <laughs> yeah, they were like, gays were kind of unicorns to a lot of them. And it was all like, it was the boarding school stuff of the, like the late seventies and early eighties. And then like the gritty secretly gay cops in New York and like, fake yeah. and, Oh, what's that one Deb that just came out that Yen just put out? It's like a classic. It's a New York, New York by Marimo Ragawa. Yeah, that just came out. And that's like Mark who works at Yen who released it in English was just telling me about that when I was like this, like lost classic of like hardcore gritty early shonen i kind of manga have you read it is it any good should we put it on the podcast i don't even know it's pretty melodramatic and it's (laughs) okay it's a little it's very 80s (laughs) in vibe it's it's interesting it's it's worth a read a little side note about that is that mario movergawa did a manga called baby and me and so which is a really charming story about a young boy raising his younger brother. Oh, was that a shoujo beat title? Indeed, yes. Like a biz title? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. That was always so weird. They drew that baby so weird. <laughs> but, Sorry. But, you know, like, Mark <laughs> like, also did, does, like, BL-type work, too, right? And then yeah. does her current series is the Snow White Notes about shamisen players. Like, Oh, you've talked about that a couple which times. Which I love a lot. I really like that one, yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's really fascinating because... You know, there's a whole period of manga, right, that's never been published in English because it was before, Mm. like, 1990, and that was one of them. Yeah, it's on my list for sure, but but I almost had to imagine what what was out there at the time because you couldn't really get get it, and you certainly couldn't get it in English, still can't for a lot of Mm. these. That's what was the inspiration behind me making my first story and my first comic, and I... Your secret origin. Your secret origin story. My secret origin. And then I saw XY Magazine, which was a magazine with lots of handsome guys <laughs> on the shelves. And I and I bought it and I was like, oh, you know, I, let me just send them my comic and see if they'll... And I, I like hand wrote a letter. I was like, here's my comic for you to review. Or you can... Maybe you can run it. <laughs> and wow. they actually called me. Fortune favors the bold. Yeah. So they called me and then like we worked it out. We worked it out. And I actually, instead of having a part-time job, I like did it and I got paid and I did the comic oh. for them for like, it went in for like two years, but I was, I think it ran for two years in there. But, but that's the story of how that initially happened. So, and then luckily, fortunately, Chris read it and many others that I wouldn't have expected. And the, the other secret origin of this is it was a mini comic. The mini comic is how I met my good friend Yuko Koyama, mm-hmm. who I cl- went on to collaborate with and who became my first like very close pen pal in Japan. And we it resulted in us exhibiting a comic market together in 1997. Oh, wow. 
So because the comic came out in like 96, it was a mini comic, her and her sister came to New York and I was putting it in punk record stores and different comic shops. They went to Other Music, which is like a famous indie rock store. Mm. But there's a documentary about the story on Amazon, I think. And I guess Yuko's sister saw it and was like, hey, there's a comic here. And then Yuko got it. She bought it, took it to Japan. And then we became pen pals. And we now are still good at great friends. And we're hanging out last a couple weeks ago. And this is over 20 years long going. Making my first comic was like really pivotal to many uh, parts of my life up to now, like my friendships and my creative lifestyle and everything. Oh, that's awesome. It's funny too, because I'm actually in Tokyo right now and you and Deb like missed each other, like, like ships in the night actually while, while you were, I was, it's like, yeah, but I've seen both of you. I've seen all three of you guys recently. And it's like, oh yeah, but you didn't see each other. You didn't quite cross over during your, it's funny, like everybody is making their like first or in Deb's case, second or third trip back to Japan after the long national nightmare, uh, international nightmare. Yeah, it's nice. How did how did you I know Deb had a pretty pretty good time and a busy time too. How did you guys enjoy your last trip? Was it like everything you'd been dreaming of for three years or Oh yeah. Before the pandemic, you were going back at least once a year or more? Yeah. Yeah. Well that actually let's let's stay with you then, Abby, because that brings us to you had to come back every year because you were writing books about Japan. Abby wrote the cool Tokyo guide, the cool Japan guide, and then just came out with uniquely Japan just a little, just like a couple months ago, right? Yes. And the story behind those books is not that different from the story <laughs> of Tesla, which is I made a mini comic with Yuko, who I had just mentioned, my good friend Yuko, Yuko Koyama. Check out her stuff, Water M. Leon. Uh, that's her Twitter. We'll have links in the show notes. It'll be fine. Everyone can check it yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. We. We made some mini comics together and collaborated, and she actually exhibited TCAP with me. I exhibited with her. You know, we had traveled to Anglem together. We've actually done a bunch of things together. However, we made a mini comic together that was about food, and I I had a part about Japanese food, and she did a half of it about American food. And I went to a kind of like a little convention about food publishing that was in New York many years back, and Tuttle had a table there, and I just made conversation with Christopher Johns, who is an awesome guy who I worked with there for a long time. And I just gave him my mini comic. And then he was like, oh, you should do book for us. So, hey, everybody, <laughs> do make mini comics. This is how you get published. This is, anyway, that's my experience. <laughs> yeah, wow. What was it? No, we'll come back. We'll come back to that. I'll write that down to remember to come back to it later. Which brings us, <laughs> Matthew, what is your secret origin story because i was i was friends with the oni press guys and then they're like oh we got this cool young kid who's doing stuff for us now and it was like they always talked about you like you you were maybe still in high school or something <laughs> while you were making the comics for them it's like yeah he's this young guy and he's coming up and i'm like how young are we talking like is he like do like doing this on his lunch break or what's the deal but i assume you had perhaps graduated like art school or something before you started working for oni <laughs> yeah, but quite a bit. I <laughs> I have a long a young looking face, so that's hilarious. But yeah, that was my first professional gigs was with, was with Oni. It was the early Oni days too, like not the earliest Oni days. So I, I did go to art school. I went to school of visual arts in, in Manhattan in New York City. Went for the four years. I did not major in cartooning though. I majored in illustration, and that's I 
pretty much just did that because I wanted to learn how to just be a better painter and a better artist. I like a lot of kids, probably I naively didn't even think about what my career might be afterwards. While I was there, they do have a really a very famous cartooning department. And I made friends with a lot of people that went to the cartooning classes. And I started taking a few of the classes, but not a, not a lot of major ones. And it wasn't until I graduated where I was like, I was reading a lot of stuff, a lot of Oni Press. I was really impressed by, you know, the late 90s indie scene was kind of like a unique. Back then, it's kind of hard to remember. Even the kids comics that we have now, yeah. it just wasn't around. Or it was, it, honestly, it was almost non-existent other than just Archie or a few a few things. Certainly not the way it exists now. And the only other alternative is really direct market marvel dc kind of style and i just wasn't really i didn't really draw like that like i didn't really wasn't that interested in drawing the hyper muscly realistic guys but then i saw things like oni where i was like oh i, I can kind of draw <laughs> yeah. like that because it's like they're doing interesting stories but then there's like scott chandler who's doing sort of a cartoony you know look to his characters or like scott morse who has this kind of like animation background and has this really exciting like look to his inking and I'm like that. I feel like it kind of fit into that. So that was kind of like my North star. And I was able to kind of get in with them. It was great. I was really lucky and very happy. I, like I said, I was, I was able to, I did, I did a book with another writer first and then they, I pitched them my own idea. It was just kind of like right after Scott, the first Scott Pilgrim came out. And I think that helped my, my case. Cause it was kind of about, about a bunch of slackers who played video games. They're like, Hmm, I think this is a winning a winning formula for us. So let's try it. <laughs> it was, it was really fun to be around everybody during that time. And it was fun making stuff. And that it, it was like, it felt kind of DIY that they didn't publish almost anything yeah. in color yet. So we're all doing like kind of indie stuff. It was super fun. And everybody, every there was great. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the comic origin. Uh, <laughs> I did do some minis, but not as many minis as a lot of people do. I, I kind of did a few kind of got on Oni's radar. I got permission to kind of submit stuff. And eventually they're like, Hey, you want to do this book? You didn't really have time to do and a lot of minis. Basically... <laughs> you were, you were like, you were, you were a very young yeah. guy who was coming up and they were just <laughs> scooping you up to try and put you on series right away. So I always found that really fascinating. Yeah. What was the name of the book you did with Anthony, by the way? I totally, I maybe blanked on that one. It was F stop. Oh, right, 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 right. It was yeah. kind of like a photography. A guy, a, a guy who wants to be a photographer, but he's terrible at it. He just, but his bad photos suddenly become like super in vogue, and it almost becomes kind of like he becomes kind of like a flavor of the week kind of thing. I guess it goes to his head, but then he realizes, oh, I suck, and I want to actually become a good photographer. <laughs> so it, it was a cool story. Only kind of had this reputation of being kind of manga adjacent right like like it had it had this this mm. of all the indie publishers was kind of like they didn't exactly publish manga but they published manga that was appealing to manga readers like there was a little overlap is that kind of partly where you came from or yeah absolutely absolutely like you know like like many kids my age who grew up in the 80s I read, you know, Snoopy comics, like Peanuts comics. I, I My grandmother used to get like ones from the yard sale, like collections from yard sales. And I loved them. Garfield, the kind of stuff you would get at the Scholastic yeah. Book Fair. <laughs> um, the only thing that everyone else my age was into that I never read was Calvin and Hobbes. I loved the art, but I just never read it mm -hmm. growing up. And then I also loved superhero stuff. But then around high school is when I 
I got uh, exposed to anime and, and manga. I had a, ver- a very good friend named Steve Uy, who is actually a cartoonist. He's done stuff for Aftershock and a few other places. And he he was the kind of guy who was like, he was the pusher. <laughs> he was the like, okay, like I- I'm too lazy and don't have the wherewithal to kind of find this stuff, or nor, nor do I have enough money to buy, you know, all the extremely expensive VHS tapes from Suncoast Videos. But he like would rent them from the local comic shop and then du- and then make copies and then we would watch them. So he he was like, oh, okay, you haven't seen here's here's a cartoon, but super super adult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. got like they're killing each other in this, or like it's got nudity, or it's got this stuff. And it's like, oh, and then it was kind of like just I'm like, I didn't know you could do that. I thought you just had to have cartoon mice and that's all you could do. But like, it definitely blew my mind. It definitely was like, oh wow. And not only just for you know animation, but for like comics and stories. I was like, you can do like, you know, like what Akira, like with this crazy, like sci-fi epic that's gorgeously illustrated. And it was, it was, uh, it was kind of like a comics and storytelling, like eye opener for me. So I, I would say I, I'm probably most influenced by, as comics go by anime and manga, oh, for like, sure. For example, which like, I know Abby mentioned a couple, but I'd love to hear one or two from you. Let me think, let me think. For... I, well, for a lot of like Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki stuff specifically, like that kind of ke- definitely is relevant to the mm. Prunella book that I most recently did, which came out. You know, I, I grew up also really loving children's books. My my mom had a collection of like old children's books, like uh, uh, of the classics, and so I always liked that, and I always felt encouraged to not, you know, to not like you know look down on a quote unquote kids story, you know, because the adults in my life like still read them and read them to me when I was growing up. So I, I like that kind of mystique and fantasy. My mom used to read me Lord of the Rings <laughs> growing up. And I, I wasn't even really aware of Ghibli or Miyazaki till, till like college when Princess Mononoke came out. I think that was the first big one that would like hit my radar. I was very vaguely aware of, of Totoro, but it was a big deal when Mononoke came out and, and it, I didn't see it in the theaters in New York, but I know it was like a big thing. It like was in, it played in a bunch of indie theaters in New York. It was kind of a big deal. And, and that was kind of like, I'm like, Oh wow, this is like a fantasy, but it's unlike any fantasy I've ever seen or ever, you know, I've only had seen like Western or fantasy influence fantasies. And I now know that, the, that Mononoke is very, you know, Japanese and Eastern influenced, but it was really, cool i'm like oh that's a completely different take on a fantasy like 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 a european fantasy is cool and in like probably i'm forgetting maybe like 13 or so years ago when g kids started to go around and like play the more obscure ghibli movies before they were all on or not before but like because i think disney had put Mm -hmm. them all out but before people were as aware of things like pompoco or ocean waves and whispers of the heart we would you know because we all lived in new york we would all you know me and my friends and abby and we would go see them at the ifc or wherever they would be and that and that was great to see them on the on the theater on the bigger screen and just so i learned a bit about like their technique about how like miyazaki kind of like planned his 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 movies via like kind of like a watercolor Bible to kind of like get the feel and the look of the characters and some of the key scenes. And that was probably a very big influence on how I kind of approached my first painted book. I was going to say like, cause I just read 
Prunella. And the thing that really struck me was that the you mentioned, you know, reading fairy tales when you were a kid. How Prunella actually starts in what seems like a very European style uh, village, then goes to a village that is very Asian, like Asian lanterns, uh, like yokai type of thing, but not yokai per se. And it just kind of like weaves in and out of this Asian Western fairy tale kind of thing, but very definitely, very definitely seems to land on the side of the Asian side. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, oh, okay. The the Western perception of these monsters and how they treat each other is very in the Western village is like, oh, they're so close minded, right? Monsters are bad. Monsters yeah. must be defeated. And then once she gets out of that land. Like there was this really striking moment when like she hooks up with the skeletons who are like pirates and stuff. And they're just having a jolly old time. And then she's saying, <laughs> hey, you know, how do I get, how do I turn back into a human? And then the skeleton guy goes, I don't know why you'd want to. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was so charming. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I I wouldn't say it was deliberate, but you're right. My stories, I just kind of write them organically. And probably one of the bigger, like, just themes for me is just the, because this is kind of like a, you know, a personal thing. And, and whether I was super deliberate about it or not, but like, the the fact or the first time I was able to like, leave my town or leave the area that I grew up in, or actually go somewhere that was like, a had more more things for me to like see probably like it, you know we went on vacations and stuff but like moving to new york city was kind of an eye-opening you know experience for me going to college with a bunch of like-minded people but also very very different people from very different places and backgrounds is great like it was i would say traveling is one of the most valuable things that i've ever done in my entire life and going to different places and going to places like japan going to places Europe and in England, it's it's just kind of like it's so important <laughs> to like get out of your out of your safe space or out of your out of your you know locale and just you know like it, without without judgment and just be like okay things are di different over here are done differently and like I'm gonna, I'm not going to judge I'm just going to see and then and then decide you know so I think there's a bit of that for this. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a white guy. I've got European background, so I kind of, you know, I can definitely. I think it's, you know, I definitely have grown up with you know people who have biases, and I've always, even though I'm, I also am the artist was often thought of as kind of the weird kid, you know, by you know adults from the church and stuff like that that I grew up in. So, I definitely have that kind of feeling. I'm like, you know. This is something, you know, I'm, I'm fine here, but like, I don't always quite feel like things kind of click. But then when I went to New York and found my other artists and found my people, I was just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I realized what I was really missing. I realized what was really up. So this is a little bit like that, because even in the beginning, the character Prunella, she's not like, oh, I'm so upset that everyone around me is like terrible or hates monsters, you know, without any reasoning. She's just kind of like, she's like, it seems weird, but all right, you know, and that's just kind of how it is, you know, where you, but it, it wasn't until she, you know, put on the cursed ring, became a skeleton monster herself, and then just kicked out of her village by all of the townspeople who don't even really recognize her anymore. And when she interacts with other monsters in the forest, 
finds out they're super nice, very helpful, very different, you know, and I, I thought that was just, to me, that was just like, it's just the, the evolution of that story. And it's like, I didn't even go out to try to make it like a, you know, an, an anti-bias or, you know, a xenophobic kind of story. Because really? it's anti-xenophobia such a kind of story. theme of the work. <laughs> yeah. It's like my, it, it's once the story came together, I was like, yeah, obviously it's about that. But when I was first thinking, I'm like, I like the idea of like super simple fairy tales where it's like, here's the village of the so-and-sos and like in Wizard of Oz, we're like, uh, now we're in the town where they have the, you know. Like the dolls. <laughs> The dolls, yeah. And I'm like, that's that's fun. That's fun fantasy or like fairy tale kind of stuff. But then of course I'm just like, well, this is once I figured out my premise, I'm like, yeah, it's this is the direction it's going. It's and the story is kind of like just and, and like the ending, which I won't totally spoil, but like I didn't I was just kinda like writing that and I'm and it just I'm like, oh, this is what the ending has yeah. to be. <laughs> and that's just kind of the way I write, I guess. It, it kind of the story kind of goes off in its own way and kind of takes control. It's very satisfying because it wasn't anything I expected. Cause I went into the book cold. Like I didn't read the descriptions and I just kind of followed the journey where it takes you. I don't think we you know, people go, well, why why would this book be on Mongo's Plane? It's like, well, some of it like you can see like some of the page turns that you do, like when you know, the page turns and then all of a sudden you see the the dragon to, over a two-page spread or, you know, or the she gets kicked out and you see this two, beautiful two-page spread of her in the forest. So there's mm-hmm. kind of this manga pacing to it a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I was very, I wanted to, this was since I was hand painting this entire thing, I, I was like, I, this has to, this has got to be an art piece, you know, for me like so i want to have some really nice spreads and some really nice atmospheric kind of feeling you know again like kind of like classic children's books and yeah i I think you're right especially with with like things like ghibli or like you know trying to think like i probably like princess mononoke because there's a lot of scenes that have that feel where you're just like in in a gorgeous background a beautifully painted like forest or something like that and you're right and also there's a part where they go to the town of the monsters. There's like the monster town of Cedarton, <laughs> which is in the forest. I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> the name makes sense or at all. But and she goes into what's essentially a, an izakaya, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> essentially a Japanese pub, and like that. I was able to like draw like yakitori's and like fi- fish on sticks and a grill. Only there's just a, a giant blue monster who's. <laughs> Who's the the chef? <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts. I gotta say, like, oh, it's so good. I get to see since <laughs> I live with Matt. I get to see the original watercolor pages, and they are so beautiful. I really hope he gets to do an art show <laughs> where they go on display because I think his rendering of forests and the creatures and the yakitori are unparalleled. Honestly, <laughs> I recommend it. Thank you. It's true. <laughs> I really like the the rock creatures. How they cooperated. Oh, and how cool! You, you made them take the story forward. It was really charming. Like mm. if I if I think about it, it's like that 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 book is kind of like this great. It's like a greatest hits remix of all the best things of fairy tales from all over the world. And, yeah, but it, it fits together really nicely. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, because I'm not like I, I'm not the most original person. I just kind of like I want to. You're, you're too just hard do on yourself. No, no, it was because it had it did, ha- it did have those elements of fantasy. It had 
like real anime vibes, real manga vibes, but also real video game vibes. The idea that you go to the little town, oh. you have to go to the, you go to the the inn, and you go to the whatever, and that was totally there too. The like an encountering a different, you know, <laughs> a different race with like their own customs and stuff, and that's like very Nintendo sixty four era Legend of Zelda, especially to me. Yes, yeah, the Gorons and stuff like that. Like, oh, we're gonna do rock stuff, and that's like so in, uh, imprinted on me as a kid who grew up in like the Nintendo and then PlayStation ecosystems that I see that kind of stuff. But the other big theme, and it's the same, it's like, it's very Lord of the Rings as well. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it, reading it or having it read to you, I guess, when you were a kid is that you can't go on the adventure without the adventure changing you. And mm. you can't, you can't go back to Hobbiton at the end. You've seen the shit. You, like you can't ever, <laughs> you can't pretend that yes. things are okay anymore. And that is, without spoiling it too much, that is very much the ending of Prunella. It's like, you've changed too much to go back to your your little, your small town and to be the person that you were who was sort of boxed in before. But it's, you know, it's it's everything from like, uh, the best fairy tales, I think, do it. The best Ghibli ones do it, for sure. And I think it was present in this. And it's like, yeah, it's never immediately like, this is so Japanese, check it out. It's more like, I've grown up with all this material and like this, these interests and traveled the world and synthesized them back into a thing. And I think, I think it's wild and it has such a good, Deb and I have talked a lot about kids manga more recently, but just this idea that like kid manga is grabbing young people. Like is like, there's something about it, man, but it's just hardwires into their brains and it's getting more and more and more and more popular every year. And a lot of North American stuff kind of lacks the, edge like it connects with kids on a different level than than manga does there's a there's a visceral quality to manga that really connects with them and reading this Mm. i was like this is edgy like this is edgy as hell but not in like an off-putting way but in like a oh you're really like saying some stuff here about like get outside of your comfort zone meet different people other people aren't monsters you're actually you could be a monster and not even know it like just try and find a level I thought that was great, actually. Really, really cool about that story. Thank you very much. (laughs) I think that's really fun about both of your work is that in some ways it can look very simple, but there's layers to it. Oh, yeah. You know, that's really interesting. Like, I want to bring it back to Abby a little bit, because one thing I've always wanted to ask you about is that you you won an award, an International Manga Award some years back. Yes. And that was (laughs) from the Japanese government and you got recognized for it. I've, I've seen your book at the Kyoto Manga Museum. And I guess I, I would love to hear you talk about that experience a little bit. So yeah, the International Manga Award, it is like a super international award, as in one thing I noticed is they don't, I'm one of only a few North Americans that have gotten placed. However, I will I will say in the interest of being more modest is that I got a bronze. <laughs> so I wasn't flown out to Japan to get it. However, I did meet with, Japanese embassy people at a very nice restaurant in New York City, and they they gave me the award, and they gave me, you know, we did a photo, and I actually have the stuff right here by me. So it's basically kind of like a paper, you know, certificate, and it was and a little pin that's shaped like a word bubble that says manga. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, what did the judges say about your work that made them, you know, really take notice? 
I didn't get any, it's kind of interesting because I basically just got a phone call from it. And, and what happened is it's for Daltopia, which is another, it's another book that came out for me from a small press is Green Candy Press. It is, it's out of print, but you can get it legally through various e-book sources. So Daltopia. And it's about all that dolls that are tired of being controlled by humans. So they start their own society. It's like a fable of about society kind of told through dolls and also I always loved you know taking my dolls and cutting their hair off and drawing makeup on them and making them all punk and putting clothes on them and I wanted to make a book like that but it also is about you know fitting in or not fitting in society what can you do and it was a really fun story and I'm really happy how with how it came out and I worked with great people at the publisher and I was like, yeah, please submit it for this. So like the PR people at the publisher submitted it uh, for wow. it and I didn't think it would happen. So then I get a phone call from, you know, the Japan found it. No, I think it was from the MOFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Japan, uh, that I got a bronze award. So I was like, oh my God. I was like, well, uh, can I come to the ceremony? And they were like, well, unfortunately, we're only flying the <laughs> gold and silver people. But it still was really made me happy. And I might have been one of the first or maybe second North American person who was named for one of these awards. I know that Ken Nimora has got one. Uh, and Joe Kelly, I think it was I Kill Giants, I think, had it. But mm. I didn't actually get any specific feedback to me about it that I recall. I think it was just, I do remember Monkey Punch was on my, was on the board, uh, one of the people on the board that year. So I was like, well, I know who he is. So he must have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so that made me shame. happy. I would have loved to have heard what, like, you know, what, what they loved about it, you know? Yeah, I didn't so really, nice. I didn't really get any specific feedback as to why it was, but it was definitely, they have a specific board of creators and professionals that look at the work and they change, usually I think it changes year to year, but he was the only one who I was familiar with. And I was like, oh, Monkey Punch must have liked it. <laughs> That's For those of you not to know, he is the creator of Lupin the Third. He's the longer. <laughs> so that was cool. But it was really great, and I felt really. I do feel very honored, and it was really nice that I actually got to meet up and feel like in sort of an official capacity, my work was recognized. And being, uh, I get to visit the Kyoto Manga Museum, and they have my book there, which is very cool. And I did get to meet some other like interested readers, like there's this professor who were friends with their Fusami Ogi, I think. I had met her through some women's comics interview I was doing with her, but she's like a real proponent of Daltopia and she like even like gave it to Moto Hagio. Wow. <laughs> she is oh, wow. and she actually used it in her like this professor used it in her class and has had Matt and I actually speak in Japan at her school in Fukuoka before. So she like felt She's like a very big Daltopia fan and she is like often trying to like use it in her classes and we might, you know, so even though it was a small press book and it wasn't like a big deal in the US here, you know, it found audiences, even though it hasn't been translated in Japan yet, maybe someone will get it, pick it up. <laughs> it, it was really cool and I felt really, you know, especially because if people don't know my work, they won't know, but especially when I was starting out, like I definitely got you know, my art has been drubbed for sure <laughs> by, really? by mainstream fans. I mean, oh. think of, you know, like if somebody who's used to reading superhero comics came across my mini comic, they'd be like, what is this? Like, I definitely got, you know, people didn't understand what I was doing. And that's fine. It's not for them. I don't really care what they think. But it was nice to have an like an official, like, we think your work is 
good and worthwhile, even if I felt it wasn't understand locally or by most audiences here. <laughs> so <laughs> it's nice. I want to actually bring it to back to Kyoto, the series that we're going to, I guess we're going to feature, uh, Jinrei, where it's mm, kind of like yeah. both of you together, right? Both of you together in Kyoto. Tell me more about that. Oh, well, Mac, manga- yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's manga explaining. That's what I loved so much about Jinrei when I, when you gave me a copy, you were like, oh, this is, this is this. And like Abby had been doing the books, like using manga to talk, like it basically, like, let's be honest, you guys are just making explainer manga at this point with under a different name because it's for North American, it's for Tuttle, it's for North American publisher or for, or self-published or for, for, for a second. But it's like, nah, man, it's like explainer manga. It's like, we're using manga to talk about things that are going on and happens to be Japanese culture. That was huge for me, both with Abby's books and then with Jenry. But yeah, let's, let's talk about Jenry first then. And because you're both characters in it sort of <laughs> hopscotching your yeah. way through through Kyoto. I think it's sort of an amazing short story. Thank you. And I've been to that shrine, but I've never been at night. So that was such an amazing story. That was, yeah, that was great. So the, the Fushimi Inari shrine in Kyoto is one of the more famous uh, shrines, as you guys know. And during the day, it can get extremely busy. From what I understand, I've never actually been there during the day. And as, I, I think... It's um, crazy. <laughs> Yeah. And I think Abby was the one who I think saw in some guidebooks or, or someone she may have known kind of suggested either go super early in the morning or go after dark because it'll just be like less people. I think there are some slight superstitions about being in a shrine at night too. So we did that. And it was, I, I just, the Jinrei comic is a attempt for me to kind of like, just get that atmosphere atmospheric feel that we had when we went to it because it was like not it wasn't scary but it could be scary and it's the the temple it's like you know it's it's famously has the thousands and thousands of red tory gates that kind of wind up the mountain and there are little side areas little side shrines some are like falling apart some of them are like tons of wildlife living in them there's those spiders are everywhere in the fall wow <laughs> yeah seriously and it's it's like and the the we were when we were there there was still already in the beginning not a ton of people but the we didn't go to the top of the mountain but we the further up we went the the like less light there was and the le- it was great but it's like at a certain point we're just like it's a little too scary and it's getting <laughs> late for us to go all the way so I just kind of wanted to, and I also did this book before I worked on Prunella. Oh, so it yeah. was kind of a practice. It was kind of a practice piece for me, you know, just for, for method to try out, you know, some materials, but also to kind of like try to get an atmosphere because that was going to be very important to me for Prunella. And I wanted to do that for that, that story. Yeah, it was, it was fun, but it, it's, uh, I definitely recommend going at night. It's, it's, it's very cool. You know, as long as you're not scared of the dark. Uh, or spiders, although I don't think they show up until the fall. So if you go, if you go in the spring, you're probably okay. I think when there's a lot of people that the spiders are scared or like you're too distracted by other things. But <laughs> I thought it was really fun because it's it features both of you. And mm-hmm. one thing that I, I I love how you draw Abby because you she just looks so delighted at every everything that gets thrown at her. Like, oh, there's a cat. Oh, there's this, and it's like it's so like it it could have been like you know, like, oh, this scary, you know, thing, right? Going up the mountain and there's spirits and there's ghosts and what it, 
feels like, but it more feels like take following you two on this adventure of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, it, it's kind of like the, it's to me, it's, it's, it had a spiritual feeling to it, but not in any kind of religious way, not even in a Shinto religious way. It just had like a humanist kind of spiritual experience where it's like, you know, we, I don't remember exactly when it was we went. It was in the fall. I know that. But it was just like, it felt like an adventure. It felt like a spiritual place. It felt like a natural place. I, I love temples and shrines, but shri- I always kind of lean towards shrines. Shrines are the Shinto religious points. Mm where temples are, are Buddhists and they're both great and they both can have an incredible atmosphere, but just the, the, it's an older religion and it's like a very different religion. And it's, it's like, it, it, there's something that to me, like it just completely like figures into Japanese old folk tales and folklore and yokai and that kind of mysterious feeling. And like, you know, not to, not to like, you know, I'm not Japanese, so not to like fetishize it or anything, but like I do love that mythology. I've always loved mythology of different cultures, so it's a little bit of that. And it has it's it's just there's nothing like that in North America. There's just nothing that old. So in in Amer- in the U.S., so it's it's just great to be at places like that. I've had a couple weird moments at shrines as well, where things oh. like you turn a corner at a shrine. And you're, it's like busy because you're in Tokyo or Kyoto and it's overrun by tourists like you, uh, <laughs> like, like me. Yeah. And you sort of turn a corner and all of a sudden all the sound drops out just like, mm. and maybe it's like, oh, it's a natural architecture. They built the trees there on purpose because, you know, temples and shrines, there's lots of, you know, events. And I mean, we went to a flea market, Deb and I at one of them. I like, there's always, that's where people would congregate. Right. But so maybe it's like, just maybe it's just natural architecture. Maybe it's just they planted the trees and built this wall in the right place and it blocks out the sound. But you sort of turn a corner and you drop, you know, like the sound drops out and it's really serene and beautiful. And then it's like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit and you're like, why is this so different than like five feet that way? There's something going on here and it could be anything. And I found that at Fushimi and Ari too, like you go just off the beaten path a little bit and you're in like, a graveyard or a weird little nook and you're not quite sure what it's used for. And you realize people have probably been coming there for like a thousand years or something crazy, like something that I, you can't even hold in your head and comprehend. So, so yeah, no, I feel that too. It's, it doesn't happen very often, especially now because it is so busy in the tourist spots in Japan. But if you get off the, off the beaten path for sure, it's something that's really magical. Abby, what were you going to yes. say? Oh yeah. I just was going to say, I, I am pretty sure I recommended we go there at night because I was, I like to pre-plan a lot. So I was like searching (laughs) on like online message boards and things about planning our days in Kyoto, which were all, was also kind of tight. So I was trying to say what's open at certain hours, what's, and I did see the thing about Fushimi and Ari and they're like, well, it does, it's open all night, I guess it doesn't close and it's illuminated. And I love Mm. illuminations. I mean, it's not like yeah. it's illuminated, like really bright all over the whole thing, but it's lit. So it was definitely kind of like a mysterious adventure to get there. And it was dark, but I really was not, I was expecting more people because we weren't there that late. I think we might've been there. It was a bit after sunset, but we got there and there were very few people. So like we didn't, so it, it could have definitely been like an eerie feeling and I felt like the light, the illumination was very green on, on all of the beautiful 
all of the beautiful statues of all of the foxes. <laughs> and mm. so many of them, I love them so much. And I love looking at, the, looking at it. And they each had different faces. Like mm. they're all in different styles. So you could spend, I mean, I could spend a really long time just going and admiring each different face and each different fox. Some of them were dilapidated and falling over. Some of them look newer. It's really all kind of like a jumble of a lot, a lot of fox statues. <laughs> you know in her so it's a lot of years so there's something just that and that's like not even you know getting into the tory gates and the many tory gates and the beautiful cat we met but you have to read matt's comic to see it the whole story we have good news actually matt is gonna let us run (laughs) jenry on mongosplaining extra so if you're listening now the comic will be up you can go to mongosplainingextra.com our newsletter you can read it on the website but if you subscribe that'd be cooler so and it's free subscription so yeah matt thank you so much for letting us for letting us run that that's going to be really fun oh of course and you get to experience matt's fantastic watercolor painted artwork yeah i was surprised actually when you told me you were going to switch to watercolor because your style style is so graphic and you're like no no i'm gonna do this i'm gonna whatever i didn't realize you'd gone to school to do illustration and watercolor painting and then like did everything except for that for like 10 years of comics making (laughs) yeah yeah watercolors are really gorgeous like like i was saying unparalleled like i don't even i mean i know we're married and everything but i don't really know anyone else who does better watercolor forest that's right it's a challenge i don't know anyone there's a few of us but there's there's some excellent watercolor artists uh comic artists out there but can <laughs> they draw forests and beasts roasting yakitori as well as you <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you probably not and w- another cool thing too at the end of the jinrei comic i did a bit of an explainer about some of mm. the, th- the the interesting things that you see at a at a Shinto shrine and and I'd like to, I want to do more of those it was really fun we're just mm-hmm. kind of like hey have you ever wonder you see those pa- pieces of paper like what they are what they're called and what they're for or like why is the Tory gate called a Tory gate and that kind of thing so it's kind of like as like a follow-up to the the fun narrative mm-hmm. then having like a little comic about explaining some stuff yeah that was mm-hmm. neat that was really that was really thoughtful I was going to say, because like now that Japan has opened up, you know, Christopher and myself, you have been to Japan several times. What's your number one travel tip for people? Mm, number one. Number one travel tip. <laughs> you start, Abby, because you, you do the planning. <laughs> yes. So like I think it was mentioned, but I wrote three books about Japan, two of which are travel guidebooks. <laughs> Well, I'd say my number one tip is actually to constantly keep checking the websites again and again, because I like to use Japan Dash Guide and Tokyo Cheapo. I feel like they're .com. They're both pretty up to date on certain things, especially with what's been going on with all the changes. And in May, they're going to be changing things again for entry, which I think is going to make it even more loose, but obviously more, more hopefully simpler to get in. But things just are changing a lot all the time. I actually feel a bit bad when people are tagging me that they bought Cool Japan Guide and they're like, I'm about to go to Japan. I'm thinking, oh my God, that book came out in 2015. And I really hope that you are checking how to enter Japan and what the current JR Pass situation is because I cannot do anything about it right now. (laughs) But (laughs) we do have the opportunity to put updates in. That's what I learned doing travel books. Nothing stays the same. 
the Gundam statue changed at least once since I drew the Gundam statue <laughs> in the first edition of the book. The JR passed. Yeah, yeah. The, it was also gone for a while. And then I just feel bad for the folks who like didn't like look that up before they went. You know, like sorry, I didn't, <laughs> yeah, couldn't do yeah. anything. It's it's a book, I, but we do try to put updates in as we can. And I actually, since this trip, because of things that have been really different with Japan entry and also with the JR pass, which to Matt and mine's disappointment had a total downgrade. It is not a beautiful <laughs> folio anymore. It is a little green ticket. And you really don't want to lose that ticket and you have to stick it in through the turnstile mm. slot to get in and out of the train. So it's a little bit more convenient because of that, but it's just it's terrifying if you're like, this thing looks exactly like all my other tickets. This has cost us over almost three hundred dollars. If we lose it, they will not replace it. So it will not. it's like I wish it was made out of something like plastic. Yeah, something. so so my but, number yeah. one tip is definitely <laughs> to well, first of course, of course, buy my books. But the other thing is you have to keep on top of online exactly what's going on with the entry procedures and with the transportation options because they are always mm. changing. Mm. And there's like no there isn't always a rhyme or reason. We don't really know why they you know, I can guess why they changed the JR pass that way. It probably made sense in certain ways, but it doesn't make a good souvenir anymore. It's easier to lose it. But I, I don't want to take up an hour talking about how what the deal is with the JR pass, but, <laughs> but <laughs> go to tokyocheapo.com and japan-guide and you can figure it out. But I will say it is no longer a beautiful folio. It's now a little green ticket and you don't want to lose it. So discard it with your life if you buy one. I would say if I was to give some advice for a first time, a traveler to Japan, to visitor, one is obviously, you know, learn a bit of the basics of the language, but don't stress about it. Because especially if you're going to be in Tokyo for the first time, it's very, it's much more English friendly than you might expect for, for a very different language than English. But even, even other parts of the country are pretty English friendly nowadays, the cities at least. And I would say, like, it's a very safe country, so don't be afraid to just explore. And it's some, one of the most gratifying things is to stumble upon a shopping street in a random neighborhood or to kind of, like, stumble, stumble on a cool, like, area that has some cool shops or restaurants. You know, you do your research, but, like, some of the most fun I've ever had in Japan is just wandering. I, I've What's the name of the town where that's is near Mount Fuji? Hakone. Hakone, I'm sorry. Hakone, like we went to Hakone and it was the first time we were there in spring and Abby was we were there with Yuko, Abby's friend Yuko again. Hi Yuko. <laughs> they went to a cool themed like onsen, like kind of like a a very interesting and that just wasn't my thing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go just explore. So I just took like different trains down to different parts of the, of the areas. I, I kind of wandered around. I wandered to the other side of the river where people just live. And I found a couple temples or shrines over there. And it was just wonderful. It was just like an, un I, I ran into a lady who used to live, who a Japanese woman who used to live in Ohio in America. <laughs> and she showed me at a temple, she showed me this like hidden, like garden behind it. That's like a Kyoto style garden. It's like, I would never have seen it. I would never have known where that was if I just didn't randomly run into her. Mm. It was great. Like, just kind of wandered around, just took my time, and probably did some sketching too. Was, that's that's stuff I I really love. Little quiet moments, and when you don't totally have a plan, that's it's good. I, I that's all very good. Yes, totally. And I, I did have some hot tips actually. I just 
thought of like newer hot breaking breaking news hot tips oh exclusive well, one was that for the, G- the ghibli park which it still is very hard to get tickets to and people don't it's not totally clear exactly the best way to get tickets unless you do it way in advance or part of a lottery for a lot of people like however jtb which is the japanese travel agency they used to only sell they used to sell Ghibli Museum tickets standalone, which they don't anymore. But you can get Ghibli Museum tickets in packages with JR Pass and with hotels through JTB, right? But they also it's not on their website. But if you want to get JT, if you want to go to the Ghibli Park, you email them through the website and ask them, and they are selling Ghibli Park passes with hotels in Nagoya. And I found this out because I was considering it. So I just found like the contact us part of the link. And I was like, so by the way, are you selling Ghibli Park tickets? And it's only to the what, the warehouse section of the Ghibli Park. Yeah. There, there's only, there are like three sections, but there was only one. But it's still better than not being able to get in, which is what will happen to you if you go to Japan and just try to show up at the Ghibli Park. So I feel like if you're trying to make a plan and you want to go to Ghibli Park, Though it sounds to me, it's really more of a photo opportunity kind of a park situation. There are no rides, so it might not be for everybody. But th- there's some, already some YouTube walkthroughs if you want to get an idea if it's worth it for you or not. But but also if it, if it gets more people to visit Nagoya, I think it's yeah, okay, Nagoya is awesome. Uh, an underrated. We were talking about this. It's an underrated town. Uh, it's a city, and we really like it there. <laughs> Misakatsu. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. N- N- Nagoya is definitely awesome. So people should do that anyway. If you want to go to Ghibli Park, absolutely. I think it's worth it to, to contact JTB and get a ticket along with a hotel room at Nagoya. <laughs> I, I think people have asked me, like, oh, why do you go to Japan so often? It's like, because mm. it's like playing a video game. Every time I go, I level up a little bit and it gets mm. a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit yes, better. Yes, yes. And, yeah. and I make slightly fewer mistakes. And I get braver about going That's true. to other places. And it just, you put points into your language skill. And so you like can language your way through things better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a good metaphor. That's a great way of putting it, Deb. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> I definitely agree. And the other hot tip, was, which I did get to do this time, was they opened an onsen, a rooftop onsen, onsen attached to Haneda Airport. So oh. if you want... When you arrive to Haneda Airport and you're tired and you want to go and have an onsen experience, there is a very nice onsen spa as part of the new airport garden, Haneda Airport Garden, which is like a big shopping and hotel complex walkable from Terminal 3. Hmm. These are hot tips, hot off the press, (laughs) I recommend. (laughs) Awesome. Chris, any other questions for Abby and Matt? Yeah, uh, I was thinking about something we said uh, back at the beginning, and it was the idea of discovery. And we actually, I was just listening and working on the show notes for the Tokyo Scope crossover episode that we did with Matt Alton, Patrick Macias's podcast. And we spent a lot of time talking about formative experiences on that podcast for what are like our secret origins as well. And it's just this idea of like, hmm, digging through crates or like finding a magazine and finding stuff listed in the back of the magazine. And for me, being a, a young you know, queer person, it was the same thing for manga as it was for like, like gay shit. It was like, you buy, you sneak downtown and buy an XY magazine and look in the back to see like, what are other zines? And like, oh, who's this Abby Denson person? Maybe can I find them online maybe? And like that kind of stuff. 
but it was the same thing for manga where like I bought a comics one manga and a defunct manga publisher first to publish in geo and in English though. And in the back, it would list these other manga that they had that were digital only, including like Shonen I manga. And I'm like, Oh, I've heard of that. I didn't know there was anything in English. And you can sort of like, if you like follow internet archive way back machine links, you can find what they had at the time. And it's just this act of it's, it feels like archaeology, but it's present day. It's like you're trying to discover this thing that's out, outside of yourself, that's outside of your experience. And I wonder, because you're both like, you both travel to Japan, you've written books, like Abby, you've written like three books on being in Japan, Japanese culture, and then like manga and anime, video games and stuff like that. Do you ever feel like you did back when you first started? trying to discover this stuff and trying to figure it out. Like we just talked about having leveled up quite a bit, but do you ever get that? Like, Oh man, I just trembled onto something completely new and I I'm diving in and I don't know anything about it. I'm still trying to figure it out. Do, do you still feel like that? Do you still have that sense of discovery? Everybody in your crew identifies as either big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think with certain things, again, I'm also like a big like movie fan and into B movies and stuff. So, but I'm definitely not an expert on Japanese cinema, but I know what I like. So like when I find certain things I like and a lot of it, like I really find like these old, like sixties and seventies. Like I really love the black lizard. I think it was black lizard, 1967, 1968, like certain movies I find that I'm like, Oh, I need to find more of these. So I think with cinema, I need to dig in more. But one of the things that I'm getting more intrigued by that I have, zero knowledge in and I probably am not don't even know what I'm going to do with it but when you're in Japan now there is a lot there are a lot of very beautiful vintage kimono and kimono fabric and and obi and things like that for so cheap and and mm. it's so beautiful the fabric and I can't sew and I'm not really into wearing kimono like as a <laughs> habit or anything, but I just really loved buy. I bought a bunch of the fabric just because the patterns were so nice, and it just seemed a shame. And it was so cheap. And I think it's because I'm guessing the population's aging out, and the young population doesn't really interested in kimono, the aria kimono anymore. But just seeing that craft work is just mm. it's worth it to me to be like, yes, I will buy all of this fabric and take it home. <laughs> and now I have. A bunch of, you know, but I know there's a whole world there if I want to, to like dive into. Yeah. I, I know exactly what you're saying, Chris, like first, for, I think it's like at different stages because we've been going to Japan for over 10 years together and there are just certain, you just kind of, sometimes you just discover either it's a pop culture-y thing or like a nerdy thing or a culture thing. And you're just like, oh, I got to go down the rabbit hole and really learn about this and then try to look for them when I'm there. I think probably because we hadn't been able to go there for three years, I, I, don't, I think it's almost a little bit like starting from scratch for something new, at least. Mm. I think I probably I could totally see myself like being one of those train spotters there. 
like a train of talking <laughs> yeah. like i've there's a couple of it we watch nhk world as and i've we have talked to you about this but like they have they have you know many many awesome shows that can really kind of show you different cool aspects of japanese culture and they do have a train like a train show and i'm like oh yeah i, I still don't know much about it but i could totally get into that but like <laughs> for, for things that like uh, i definitely like the more you go the more you kind of learn what to look for one of my favorite things is looking for souvenir stamps and like adding it to my notebook and when i first kind of like was researching about that it's just like you know train stations often have them stamp rallies are a thing they can be completely random and so you always just got to keep your eyes open and the jr line every single jr station in tokyo has a stamp and they changed them i don't know when they changed them but since the last time i was there four years ago they changed all of them so they're all new another hot tip (laughs) Um, the jr line yeah a new stamp rally (laughs) <laughs> yeah and retro video game collecting is a big one for me too in japan like well the first time we went there i went to akihabara and i found this incredible little retro famicom and all video game stuff japanese video games th- that was just like small store floor to ceiling just old video games it was just like so cool and so great it may still be there i didn't go there but it's completely not like it used to be mm. and then I started like researching about it and like at the time it's a very different scene now and, and partially probably because of people like me, you know, Westerners started collecting, but like th- they for a long time still kind of not too expensive or difficult to kind of collect a lot of those old games. The old Japanese oh, not ones. anymore though. <laughs> yeah. not so it's not yeah. as bad as, as I, it's not as bad as the North American video game collecting scene actually oh, really? it's okay, still that's good it's still not as it's but but it's like there are there are things that you you know unfortunately like you used to be able to like buy get a lot of the old old stuff just at a junk store you know at junk mm-hmm. shops or like book off or hard off and you can still find those things there but they're usually harder to find or more expensive but that i kind of like saw all that like i was able to get some really good things before it became much more of a collector's market. <laughs> the, another thing I like to get to is I really like to get cheap figures like from Tokusatsu. You know, I like these ultra monster figures and I like to get, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, any kind of like kaiju figurines that are, especially the brightly colored ones. And I remember we were in Sapporo a while ago and we found there was like a giant hobby off there and I bought, like 10 of them because they were probably like three dollars each they were used and they weren't in the boxes but i really didn't care because i just I'm like look at the pretty colors look at this monster i want it so i just got all these monsters and then like they're in my studio you know because <laughs> i just really love the designs and especially the ones that have like really garish you know like i have a hot pink monster here you know i, I just love it when the colors are really intense and when it's like a really like funny looking monster where they're like the eyes bulging out and it's not even really scary like there's the, the aesthetic of it is amazing and that's another thing where I'm like i did look up the names of some of them but i'm like you know i don't need to know but i know it's there for me if i want to like go <laughs> hard and become a hardcore like kaiju fan and know what the name of all of them are and like what year the toy was made i know like i know Matt all oh, is into toys like i know <laughs> You just his. send him a photo and be like, "What is like, this?" Matt, and he'll be like, it? "Here's a thousand words." On yeah, what yeah, that yeah. Is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so and I appreciate that because I think it is wonderful to love and be obsessed with your like 
art, and I, I do consider it an art, whether it's like pop art or whatever. I think that that's one of the things that that's so inspirational about, you know, even us all talking now and like what Matt and I do mm. and the friends we have. I feel like a lot of the friends I have are there because it was putting out your art sends up a signal that other people can recognize and then you can reach each other. So bringing it back to comics for a sec, the the other thing that it reminded me of was Deb's been like super getting into Korean webtoons lately and like rabbit hole diving like into like this whole new world of comics to her. And like Deb, does that like bring that same feeling of discovering manga when you were like, like it was manga was always around obviously when you were, when you were a little girl, but like uh, suddenly realizing, Oh, this is a thing that I can like really get into. Is it like the same kind of feeling there? It kind of is. Cause it's the more I get into it, the more I realize how much I don't know compared to how much I know manga. Right. Mm. Like, it's, I don't know the history. I don't know the influences. I don't know who the publishers are. I don't know. You know, what is this thing about them being in studios? What's this thing about like how the Korean economy affected, basically decimated the entire print industry. So now it's mostly digital. There's all these things that, you know, as soon as you start asking questions, it's like you just, there are more questions and more questions. And it's given me a kind of a new empathy for people who, I don't know, like who come up to me and, and ask me questions about manga and manga publishing and stuff like that. And then, I don't know, sometimes I'll end up like, explaining stuff and then and then people go like wow that was a ted talk huh and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like wait don't you know all this shit <laughs> it's like yeah and so it's kind of like ah uh. so i guess the, to bring it back to the webtoon thing it's like it comparing it to what i know about how the japanese publishing industry works and how manga is created and who's the influences and what makes it what it is and then I see hints of it in Korean webtoons, but I don't know why. <laughs> mm. And so, like, I'm finding myself, I'm the, now all of a sudden, I'm the one asking the dumb questions like, wait, so why is this like this? And how come it's like that? And wait, why, why does this character all of a sudden get weird looking? You know? Or like, why is all the same, why is all the shonen stories about guys getting bullied? Like, huh? Yeah. That's a weird one in Korean webtoons. It's just like every single one is like and they're bullies. super violent too. Like right, it's a high yeah. school story, and the kids are getting beaten up like crazy in mm. high school. It's like, wait, what? How? I mean, how much? So you know, somehow it's like with manga, right? Where it's like mm. Japanese high school really like this. <laughs> <laughs> is Korean high school and like this? Everyone getting the crap kicked out of them every week? Uh, like maybe this thing, I, I don't know. <laughs> But it's it's weird, right? Because you kind of come to, like, your books, obviously, you know, Abby, like, your Japan books come from a sense of curiosity and love. and But it's also kind of an introduction to a new world, right? I mean, what kind of feedback have you heard from readers who have read your books or what, what they get out of it? Yeah, I get a lot of positive feedback. And sometimes I get fan letters written by children. Sometimes I get emails from parents of children who got it and were like, my kid really loves your book. And we went to Japan and they had such a good time. And so I, I really like that. But yeah, usually I get feedback about how it made them feel more comfortable mm -hmm. and that it, I guess that it has a friendly interface, you know, it's like a friendly kind of vibe of the book. It's not just like a text travel book where 
you might feel it's dry or kind of just like throwing a bunch of facts at you, whereas mine is a bit more personable because it has myself and it has Matt as a character in it. And it has my friend Yuka, who we mentioned a few times as characters, and my character Kitty Sweetooth, who is a character in it. So it has characters that are going through the experiences along with you or showing you things. And I think that that can make it much more of a friendly read than a, you know, bare bones travel guide. <laughs> yeah. And it's written from my experience. I actually love travel guides. I have like, well, before I moved to this side of the world, I actually had a huge collection. I'm at like two shelves, including all of your books. And I, <laughs> I do want to, yeah, let's talk about Kitty Sweet Tooth just for a sec, because I think it's wild uh, actually that it, that people are not like more talking about it because it's, you partnered up with a, uh, a Japanese artist, Utamaru, doing like a like a, a a kids sort of fantasy adventure series based on this character you've had for a while, and like it it doesn't look like anything else. It's such a wild situation. Could you could you talk a little bit about how that partnership came together? Because it's because Utamaru yes, is not like yeah, a, yeah. a mangaka, right? They're like a they're like an illustrator animator. Yeah, Itamaru does illustrations, designs, and very recently did the anime character designs for the Mute King anime. The Mute King, the dancing hero, which is a reboot of, I believe, a Tatsunoko anime. And it is fun, so fun. It's on Funimation. Please watch Mute King. (laughs) But it's like a dance battle, sci-fi dance battle anime. It's my best way I can explain it. With rollerblading or roller skating. (laughs) Roller disco dance battling. Anyway, so I was in Tokyo and wanted to go to this bar, which was uh, themed after the horror movie Suspiria, and the bar is called Cambiare. So I we I went with some people, and I ended up just randomly meeting Udomaru, among other people who I am now still friends with that I met that night. So we met there and we just sort of were keeping in touch on Facebook and I knew I really liked her art and I, you know, Matt and I both really admire her art. And we also met Miyako Kojima there. So who also has a book coming out in English from Starfruit now, <laughs> which is cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Horror manga, right? Well, yes, yes, yes. The, the horror manga. Yeah. I met them both oh, in the yeah. same night. Amazing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Hanging out in a Suspiria bar. That's awesome. That's very Japan. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> it, yes. And Kaneko was with us too that night. Yeah. Oh, really? Name dropping all over uh, the place. Atsushi yeah. Kaneko. Oh, Atsushi Kaneko. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we went with uh, Atsushi so Kaneko. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, amazing. Everybody check out his comics. He did the uh, Bambi and her pink gun. Yes. And a couple other books that haven't been licensed in English yet, but he's an amazing artist. Yeah, he's yeah. spectacular. Yeah. I hear he's going to have a new book in English soon, actually. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. Oh. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> yes, yes. Anyways, I met Udamar randomly at this bar. And then we kept up a friendship. And when I wanted to make a Kitty Sweet Tooth kids book, and I wanted to try to collaborate with another artist, and I wanted to make a pitch for it. And I thought, who would be like a dream artist? I thought, what about Udamaru? So I contacted her and saw, thought she said she was interested. So I, I commissioned her to do some... Um, you know, sample pages and character designs with me for the pitch. And then the pitch ultimately went through and we got a two book deal with first second. So it was Kitty Sweet Tooth as the first book. And then Kitty Sweet Tooth makes a movie. And the story is about a cat who, and it's it's actually semi-autobiographical. People who know me will know. So it's about a purple cat, of course, 
like me, who loves movie B movies and desserts, and collaborates with a witch and a not mad scientist to make magical food basically that goes crazy during these B movie screenings. First book is about that, and then in the second one, Kitty Sweet Tooth wants to direct her own movies. So she directs a movie with her friends and it's like a globe trotting adventure with like a transforming vehicle. So it's very they're both these like really wild kind of psychedelic books. And Udomaro is an amazing artist, an amazing character designer. Please check her stuff out. She did, or I will say R.A.P. Mondo, but she did some amazing posters for Mondo. I, I have the her Return oh, wow. of the Living Dead poster on my wall right now. <laughs> it's like amazing. <laughs> so she's a real genius. I can't even I'm surrounded by genius. I'm really lucky. I've got Matt here. I get to work with Udomaru. You know, how lucky am I? <laughs> so uh, uh. I think the lesson is just, you know, dream big and ask for what you want. Hopefully <laughs> you'll get to do it <laughs> <laughs> and do the work, you know, like that make the cool. mini comics, show people your ideas, you know, mm. but I really hope people find dream it because both of those books came out during pandemic. So it was really difficult to like, sufficiently promote them the kitty oh, sweet yeah. book so it's a real bummer have you guys considered podcasting instead because uh, <laughs> people just pick these things up during the podcast it's real it's a little real wild actually how people listen to them at all actually uh so it's great yo maybe but yeah but <laughs> yeah so but i really recommend it check out Udamar's, like and you know it's been a real dream working with her so i'm really happy but with the, how these books came out, I think they have a really positive message. And my understanding is the kids are loving them. So I'm hearing the feedback. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I think that we're probably a little over even, but I want to do a thing that we usually do when it's just like just David and Chip and Deb and I podcasting, which is final thoughts. Even though we're not having a final thought about the book, we've had such a lovely and wide ranging conversation. I thought I would offer up final thoughts to everybody. So everyone, what are your final thoughts on this lovely conversation we've had today? Who wants to go first? Well, I'm just feeling grateful. I feel grateful to be uh, surrounded with, like I said, surrounded by genius and with great friends and get to talk to wonderful people like you. I'm like a fan of the podcast. So it makes me and a fan of you as humans before you did the podcast. So I'm really happy we get to We're have this conversation and cutting all this out, cutting all this out. <laughs> but, but I, I do think like i mentioned i think art is a way that is something that can connect everybody globally and if you show your signal if you put it out there then it will bring like-minded individuals to you and that's mm, that's really, like a magical really cool. thing about art matt how about you <laughs> my final thoughts, and again, thank you for having us. We both love this podcast, and you guys are great. And we've learned a lot of, about a lot of different mangas because of the podcast, too. Yeah, I, I would say for me, similar to what Abby was saying, just being an artist it can be such an isolating job sometimes. It's just kind of wonderful that we've been able to kind of use our art to go to conventions, but also go to international conventions and meet international artists, you know, not just in Japan, but also Europe. But we've, you know, we've been so fortunate and lucky that we have actually met, you know, and become very good friends with different comic artists in Japan and different other visual artists. 
And it's like as different as the cultures can be, I feel like there's just that unity of, of artists. There's just something about an artist kind of way of thinking that like there'll still be differences and differences of perspective. But like it'll just it's just a unique relationship between, I think, artists even that kind of supersedes, you know, national borders that's one of my favorite things about going to Japan is seeing our friends, our artist friends and, and, and meeting new people and meeting other new artist friends. And it's it also one of my favorite things is meeting other, you know, people who are like us who are artists, either North American artists of origin or European. And then meeting in Japan, because we all love Japan, you know, like Ken or like we met at, at Atelier Sento from France that we met them in Japan this time last trip. And, I, my favorite is kind of like, you know, expanding the circle of of friends, of international artists and comic artists and manga artists and our appreciation of Japanese culture. Hmm, that's really cool. Deb, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the class, with the group? I would just say like what I've I've really enjoyed about our talk today. And I'm, and of course, watching, you know, your your ventures from afar is I appreciate both of your sense of adventure and your sense of openness and discovery, like sense of wonder and discovery everywhere you mm. go. Your love of what you're, like you take in what the quiet moments and the busy moments, you go off the beaten path, you make yourself open to new experiences and new people. And that's just delightful to see. So it's always so much fun to see your travel diaries and see how it c- mm. comes out in your work. So that's been really nice. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I should probably be nice as well, but I'm not going to. Like, I, like <laughs> you, I like you both. Don't get me wrong. But the thing you said like a little while ago about discovery, I was thinking about what was the last thing I actually totally didn't know about Japanese culture that I discovered while I was there. And it's through my friend, Gary. Hi, Gary. I know you are listening. Thank you. Who is a puzzle guy. And he really likes puzzles and like does competitive puzzling and, and things like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, Japan has like a like a huge, crazy puzzle culture. That is the thing that I dip into outside of manga and, and 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 food when I go to Japan. And I found out that every year, Tokyo Metro, the subway station, not the like the subway system, sorry, in Tokyo, not the JR trains, like the JR Pass, has a puzzle that you like buy for like 20 bucks and you complete the puzzle by figuring out clues and going to different stations on the Tokyo Metro system because the clues are the station and then in the station is like the next question and the next clue. And they've started doing it in both Japanese and English for tourists. And it's this like crazy ass thing that you'll see posters for in the Metro. They do it at the end of the year every year that I, that I know I walked by these posters saying, join our like special Tokyo Metro, like puzzle quiz situation every year. And I, and just like blanked out because like there's, I don't know, 500 posters in any given Tokyo Metro station. But like, yeah, that's one of his favorite things to do when he goes to Japan every year is to do like this year's Tokyo Metro puzzle. It's like so exciting for him. And that's mind blowing. Like, not only does that exist, but there are like puzzle and quiz leagues here. There's puzzle box culture, which is huge in Hakone is like a traditional handicraft that I didn't know about. There's just all this stuff that's like, Oh, I I would never have known that if I didn't have a friend who was super deep into that thing. And so you realize that like, and then quite honestly, moving to Taiwan and realizing that like, there's so much to discover and so much to like, not discover Columbus, let's say in, in like there as well, whatever you go somewhere, (laughs) there's so much to learn. 
about stuff mm. about and hopefully about yourself and that's actually been like yeah i guess it does get sappy and come back to to you guys it's like making friends who have these passions that like just differ from yours and bring sort of different things to the table and you're like oh man there's so much to learn about so much and it's awesome it's really really awesome and that yeah like that's that's the the best part of like having these passions is sharing them with people and maybe like learning that there's there's more to the world than you thought there was which is really wild. And my final, final thought is Abby's living the dream because anyone who goes to Japan gets to ask for advice on what they, sh- what other people should do in Japan when they go. And she's like, actually, I write a, I wrote a book about it. You can just buy that. And I don't have to give you advice anymore. And that's like <laughs> the dream for Deb and I, who are like constantly approached. Me, what should I do in Japan? How do I make the real pass work? And it's like, buy my book. I'm not talking about this anymore. I, I literally <laughs> said this today. I literally said this today to a guy at the Verizon store. I said, He's like, oh, I want to go to Japan. I said, I wrote three books about it. You can look my name up and buy it online. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I give him some advice and I said, but you know what? I wrote three books about it. Just look it up on Amazon. (laughs) And also, (laughs) I also recommend Japan Dash Guide and Tokyo Cheapo pretty often because I feel like those are pretty consistently updated. (laughs) But but yeah, I say that more than you would think. So please, everybody, write your own book about Japan (laughs) and then you will have the feeling I have. I get to do it. <laughs> I get to cool. say it several times a week. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an episode of Manga Explaining Extra. Thank you. Uh, sorry, it's actually this isn't Manga Explaining Extra. This is Manga Explaining. Listen to me as our talk show segments. I totally forgot. Maybe David will overdub it. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll just put the shoujo sound effect over me messing up the name of my own podcast. <laughs> our own podcast at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> This has been Manga Explaining. Listen to me. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will be back next week with. Oh, it Deb. It's it. It's oh no. This is going to run after. Never mind. I don't know what's going to come over. Listen. Listen in the outro. We'll tell you what's coming next. Thanks. It'll so much be for magical. Listening. We promise. <laughs> <laughs>